0: Now, it's very good to be here this morning with the assembly in Stark Road, <clears throat> and I'll repeat the welcome that Dave already extended to everyone who's come. Thank you very much for being here. I ask you to turn, please, to First Peter and chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 19. 1 Peter 2 and verse 19. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, or reviled not in return. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him. That judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Now I'd like to just talk a little about the context of this passage that we've read. And if uh, you want a title for what I intend to speak on for the next half hour or so, I would say it's a title would be Honoring Him When You're Hurting. Honoring Him When You're Hurting. theres I was going to say chances are it's, it's not a chance. The fact is that in an audience of this size, with people of the age range represented, and the variety of life experiences and circumstances, there are people here today, and you're hurting. And I don't know all of the circumstances, or the causes, or the reasons, and I probably couldn't know. I couldn't really understand exactly what you've passed through, or what you're passing through. But I want to just look at this passage of Scripture in its context to see the importance... And the possibility and the need to honor God when you're hurting. Because I'll say at the very beginning that when we are hurt and our emotions become involved, we are in a very vulnerable place as believers. And I think this passage will show us that there's a very grave possibility that in a situation where we've been hurt, we are going to dishonor God. So what is the context? Well, the context here is basically um, suffering wrongly. That's what we've read. If we were to read the previous verse, the end of verse 18, the immediate context would seem to be in a workplace. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward or the unjust. And then Peter immediately goes into this section about suffering for righteousness sake. So you have in verse 19, a man for conscience toward God endures suffering wrongfully. So in the immediate context, it's a person who out of good conscience before God has tried to do what they believe is right. They have tried out of conviction and conscience before God to conduct themselves in an honorable way. But despite that, unjustly, They're suffering. Now I'm going to talk towards the end about the caution that's here because in the very next verse we're actually warned that uh, this is not always the case. There are times when I'm suffering uh, for reasons that are not quite so pure or not quite so black and white or not quite so squeaky clean. But in the immediate context is people who are suffering unjustly. So I would just pause to ask, to ask you honestly, Are you prepared to open your heart today, even though maybe it's hurting, to see what the word of God has to say? Because I think one of the first dangers we face, all of us, is that when you're in a circumstance where you're hurting, and you believe that it's not fair, and it's not just, and you don't deserve it, and you've been falsely accused, and you've been misunderstood, and people have twisted what you've said, and it's, it's all unraveling. When you're in a situation like that, if we're honest, very often we actually don't particularly want help. And especially we don't want help that is going to make circumstances continue and not unfold the way we think they should. What we want is vengeance. What we want is righteous. What we want or what we think we want is we want vindication. So I would just appeal to you, whatever your circumstances, if any of this resonates with where you are right now, it could be hurtful things that your children, your adult children have said to you. It could be hurtful things that you've experienced in a workplace. It could be things in an assembly context where things have gone against you or things have unraveled and run through your fingers. It could be any number of things. But if you're sitting here today and in your mind there are circumstances in your life and you're hurting And you feel as though your voice isn't being heard, and you're being misjudged, and you're being trampled on, and nobody seems to notice, and it just is not fair. It's not right. That is exactly the context that this passage is dealing with. So I want you to notice next, not just the context here, but in verse 21, we have a call. It says, For even here unto were ye called. Now, that's a little interesting. Uh, I pondered this and tried to think, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God actually wants us, deliberately wants us to hurt? Does that mean that his recipe for a Christian life is that somehow he sits on his throne and he derives some sort of pleasure by bringing adversity into my life or allowing adversity to come into my life just so that I will suffer That's the word from the previous verse. No, it doesn't mean that. So what does it mean, even hereunto were ye called? Well, I'd suggest to you that while God is not the author who deliberately brings suffering into our life, suffering comes as a result of sin. But it is inevitable, living in a scene that is still plagued and ruined and riddled with sin. But here's the call. When you are in a circumstance like this, God is tremendously interested in how you're going to respond. He is keenly observing, and it brings him tremendous pleasure to see a believer who is hurting, responding to that situation in the way his son did. So the call that each of us has, we may not be able to choose our circumstances in life. In fact, not that we may not be able to, we aren't able to. And you can't roll the clock back and replay it with a different script. Every one of us is sitting here on a beautiful November afternoon, and our circumstances are what they are. And the water that has gone under the bridge has gone under the bridge. And all of the implications of things that have been said and things that have been done and how we responded and how we were impacted, it's all history. It's happened. But we're here today. And the Word of God meets us here today. And we have been called to a moment like this. And the real issue is, how are you going to respond? I'd suggest to you that in this passage... One particular danger that's being brought to our attention is that at a time like this. There's a very real possibility that I will sin. That I will behave unrighteously, specifically with my tongue, by what I say. The reason I I, I say that is that as we go through these verses, we'll see that we're going to learn two things the Lord did not do. Notice that both of those things have to do with the way he controlled what he said. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He didn't answer back in kind. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. The air at Calvary was not filled with one threatening word that came from the lips of Christ. He didn't revile, he didn't threaten. And even in the verse that makes that tremendous statement that he did no sin, A broad, general, universal, sweeping statement of every action of his life. Isn't it interesting that the specific area in which he didn't sin that's highlighted in the verse, it says he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And I learned from this passage that when you are in a situation like this as a believer, one tremendous danger is that you're going to sin with what you say. It's hard. It's hard when people speak against you. It's hard when people are saying things that aren't just. It's hard when you feel as though the narrative is being controlled by others and impressions are being formed and you're being victimized. Maybe none of you have ever felt this way. Live long enough and you likely will. I'm not cynical. I'm just being real. It's the truth. And it's very, very hard in a situation like that not to seek to defend yourself. And not to seek to put down those that are against you. And not to seek to set the record straight. And not to engage in a whisper campaign to try to change the narrative. That's what all of us tend to want to do when we're hurting. But this passage comes to us and says, if you're hurting, here's what you're to do. And moving beyond this idea that even hereunto were ye called, Peter points his readers to the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's powerful in the context that he says that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. So Peter is saying there's one who has already walked this path. There's one who you can read about his experience. Peter would say, I was there and witnessed his experience. And if you look at his experience, it's true that he was engaged in things that only he and the father understood. He was there dealing with the eternal plan of redemption. He was there with the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. He was there establishing righteousness, defeating the hordes of darkness. He was doing tremendous things that day at Golgotha. But among all the things that he was doing, he was deliberately laying down an example with his eye on believers like you and me, knowing that thousands of years later there would be people of his own that he loved. And he can look right into your heart and your life and your circumstance, and he is keenly, keenly interested in how you are going to respond. And knowing that, knowing you, loving you, He's left you an example, and he's left it for me. So if we look at this, the third thing then in the passage is, really the central part of the passage, is the Christ. This passage is all about what happened to him, how he responded. And if we understand what Peter is telling us here by the Spirit of God, it is deliberately, explicitly said to be, Given to us an example. Given to us as an example. So I want you to notice with me, first of all, two simple statements of fact that we have in these verses if you read them carefully. The first is this three words in English. He was reviled. Just three simple words. But you just think of what those words mean. He was reviled. Reviled. To be reviled is to be spoken evil of. It's the idea that people use words like weapons. And they use wicked, vile, violent words to hurl them at him. And that's what happened. It happened during his life. But it happened in a tremendous way that day at the cross. They brought false accusations against him. They accused him of making himself a king. He never made himself a king. He was born a king. During his life, they accused him as a man making himself God. The real marvel was that as God, he made himself a man. Every accusation they brought against him, the word of God tells us they were false accusations. He was reviled and the air was filled at Calvary. Calvary. With people who spoke against him, it was unjust, it was unfair, it was unwarranted, it was violent, it was deliberate, and it was intended to hurt him. There was nothing unintentional about anything that was said against him. He was reviled. But the second statement of fact we have in this passage not only he was reviled, the second one is two words in English he suffered. He was reviled. And he suffered. I think sometimes there's a danger that we subconsciously can allow into our thinking the idea that because he knew the end from the beginning, because he knew how it would all turn out, because he knew that he wouldn't fail and he couldn't fail, because in that sense, in our way of thinking, you would say, well, that means he was invincible, that somehow that made his suffering less. But somehow, because he knew how it would all turn out, it made it easier for him to endure it. Can I suggest to you it's exactly the opposite? What he suffered when he was reviled really stands unique in terms of human suffering. The Bible tells us that the reproach he faced that day, it didn't, I speak reverently, it didn't run off him like water off a duck's back. It wasn't some invincible man that walked up carrying his cross, oblivious to the taunts and the cries and the reviling voices in the crowd. As a lonely man went in your place and mine to a cross of shame, reproach broke his heart. And as he looked into those hateful faces, the cry of his soul was, those that hate me without a cause. Or more than the hairs of my head. And there was a gentle soul. A perfect man. With a soft, gentle spirit. Not soft in the sense of weakness. But soft in the sense of being easily hurt. And touched. And affected when he was reviled. When he was reviled. He suffered. I'd suggest that he suffered more than you and I ever will. Even in that way. You know, we think if if you knew everything, it would make it easier. No, if you knew everything, it would make it far harder. Maybe people have said hurtful things against you. Maybe you think you know what they think. Maybe you think you know what they mean. And in our minds, we can have all sorts of imaginations about... We get hurt with words or actions. And we wonder why, and we wonder... He didn't have to wonder why. It wasn't just the hurtful words... That landed and wounded him. But he could actually see behind the words into their hearts. He could see the hatred and the envy and the venom and the animosity and the unwarranted feelings that they had towards him. And there was absolutely nothing in him that made it right. That warranted it. That deserved it. It was totally without cause. So in the context... I think what Peter and the Spirit of God want to bring to our attention is this one who suffered leaving us an example. He knows what it's like to suffer unjustly. He doesn't just know what you're going through because he made you and he knows how you function and he understands the incredibly complex interactions between our emotions and our minds and our wills and our physical health. I'm not a medical doctor, I'm just a human being like you are. I'm not saying medical doctors are not human beings, (laughs) but I'm just... uh... So I can't explain to you the interaction physiologically and psychologically and spiritually, but I'll tell you, I know they exist. And I know that when life buffets you enough, it does affect you medically. It does affect how you feel. It does affect your sleep. It affects you. It strikes you to your core. And I think what this passage is telling us is that there's a man in heaven today who doesn't just know... What you're facing because he knows you and he knows how you function. But he knows how you're feeling because he was reviled and because he suffered. And he did it as an example. So let's look then at two things that this passage tells us that he did not do. The general comment in the verse before is he did no sin. But now when you come into the passage, and he's right in the middle of the crisis, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't answer back. That's hard to do. I Maybe mean, there's a brother or a sister here today, and people have said things, and boy, you could just tear them to shreds. It's not always with your tongue. Sometimes it's with your fingers, typing or social media or whatever. However the communication comes. And there's something in us that wants to just respond in kind. And there's something in our society that glorifies that. Mm -hmm. Getting the upper hand. Having the last word. Somebody puts you down, you put them down. Somebody's got some zinger of a one-liner at you, you fire right back. Somebody shames you in front of some of your peers. You just drag them down and destroy them in front of the rest. Somebody posts something out there in the public domain that casts a dim reflection on you or maybe even worse on your family. And there's something in us that just wants to rise up and respond in kind. Remember that there's a man who was reviled. And when he was reviled, he could. I say it reverently. He could have torn those people to shreds. He's the living word. He could have formulated words to give expression to an absolutely just response to the wicked, vile insults that were being hurled at him. But when he was reviled, he didn't respond in kind. So Maybe there's somebody here today, and you're right in the middle of it. You're right in the thick of the fire. And there's something in you that just wants to lash out. Can I appeal to you in God's name? He's watching. He's not watching as some callous despot that just wants to pounce on you if you do wrong. He's watching as a Lord who's been through it himself and understands. And he's left you an example and he's left me an example. And he's appealing to your soul, don't. Don't lash out. Don't respond in kind. You might win the little battle of words. You'll lose the war of usefulness for God. So number one, he did not revile in return. And in a world that glorifies the one-liner and the brashness and the put-downs and the destruction of your enemies and the exaltation of a cause and the sweeping aside of anyone that doesn't agree, we have a gracious man as our Lord. We have a gentle man as our example. And when he was reviled, He did not revile in return. But then secondly, the second thing he did. When he suffered, and his suffering was real, and it hurt. When he suffered, he threatened not. A threat is to pronounce a negative outcome on a person. To tell them it's not going to go well. You know, it's to threaten someone. to Basically say, if you just wait. You wait your turn. And you know what I love about the Lord? Not only did he not threaten, but words, ultimately, words are an expression of our hearts and our thoughts. I love what the psalmist said. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. My strength and my Redeemer. And to me, it's astounding to think of the character of our Savior, who was suffering intensely, unjustly, and not only did he not threaten, he could have pronounced judgment on those wicked men, but he didn't. There wasn't even the thought behind the unspoken word that wished them ill. In fact, The first recorded time that his lips opened. His mouth opened and his lips parted that day at Calvary. And his voice was heard on that little hillside. It wasn't even to speak to the men; It was to speak to his father. Say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's our example. So if you're in the middle of it. And the waves and the billows are buffeting you. And the circumstances are swirling. And you're feeling so unjustly accused. Could I just ask you, myself as well, to turn and look to Christ? Number one, he suffered. He was reviled. Number two, he did not revile in return and he did not threaten. But then the passage actually goes on then to tell us the one thing that he did do. So it's not just, I mean, sometimes, and maybe I'm too honest, but when you're in a situation like this, It's really hard not to lash back. It's really hard not to vindicate yourself. It's really hard not to respond in kind. And maybe the very best that we can achieve is to just bite our tongue. Sometimes I wondered if I looked in the mirror, there must be a lot of big tooth marks in tongues. Well, good. I mean, if we can at least bite our tongues and not let it out, that's good. But far better to replace even the desire to respond like that with something that's actually positive, something that is actually constructive, something that actually, if I could just appeal to you, something that actually will heal you in the circumstances. And again, one of our big problems as fallen human beings is we actually, deep enough down, we think we want to be healed in the circumstances, but you know what we usually want? We want the other people to be set right in the circumstances. We want our healing to be achieved through others being put in their place. There's no thought in this passage of others being put in their place. There's no thought in this passage of me laying out the terms of my healing. What you do have in the passage, two things the Lord didn't do. He didn't revile again. He didn't threaten. What's the one thing he did do? He committed everything. Now, depending on your English translation, it could be himself It could be his cause. It could be everything. He committed the whole situation, including his place in it and the impact on him and the outcomes of it and the outcomes for everyone else. He committed it all to him that judges righteously. I want you to just notice with me in the passage, the Godward focus that you have. In verse 19, You have the idea that it's out of conscience toward God that this situation came about in the first place. And then at the end of verse 20, if you take it patiently, when you've done well and you suffer for it, this is acceptable with God, or this is acceptable in the sight of God. Come to Calvary. Where was Christ's focus as he was being reviled? The first words he spoke at the cross. Father. The last words he spoke at the cross before he died, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. And Peter would give us insight here that the tense of the word committed his cause or committed himself is the idea that he kept on committing himself. He continually committed himself. As that dreadful scene was unfolding and those words were flying and the arrows were landing emotionally and he was suffering reproach and his heart was breaking, where was his spirit turned? To his accusers? No. On himself and his circumstances? No. Speak reverently. His focus was on his father, and he kept on committing it to the one who judges righteously. Peter describes this one as the one who judges righteously. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he speaks about the Lord the righteous judge. It's the same one. In Paul's case, in 2 Timothy 4, he's looking at a future day. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Peter, the tense here is different. It's the Lord who judgeth righteously. And could I just suggest to you, the idea is that right in the middle of the circumstance in all of the injustice and all of the unfairness and all of the brutality and all of the hurt, there's one who's looking on right now in the present tense and he's got a perfect perspective and he judges righteously. He's the very opposite of unjust. If injustice and unfair treatment and unwarranted suffering are here, Well, you go as far as you can in the opposite direction and you will find one who understands and one who knows and one who's perfectly fair and one who is able to see every heart and hear every word and know every thought. He is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts and knowing it all, he judges righteously. Some of you have heard me say this before, but um, I have an uncle in Ireland. His name's Ronnie, Ronnie Usher. And he has a little saying, and it's, it's really helped me through an awful lot in life. He says, Andrew, always remember, the one who really matters knows. It's good to remember that when you're hurting. There is one perspective that's right. And it's not the perspective of those who are unjustly accusing you. But could I tell you, dear brother, sister, today, as gently as I can, it's likely not your perspective either. Or mine. But there is one perspective that's perfectly right. And perfectly fair. And perfectly just. And has the whole thing properly weighed up and assessed. And the secret, if I learn anything from the example of the Lord here, is the secret is to keep... On committing it all to Him, the One who judges righteously. The idea of to commit is to to deliver something over. It's the word that's used of Paul, interestingly, when he committed them to prison. The idea is he rounded up the Christians and he took them and he committed them to prison. It means it has in it the idea of giving over and releasing. It's the same word that's used in Romans 8. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. It's the idea of releasing something and giving it over. So could I just ask you today, are you prepared to do that? Instead of responding in kind, instead of speaking ill and threatening or even thinking that and dwelling on it, Instead of dissecting the thing over and over in your mind and turning it around and trying to make sense of it and wondering how you're going to retaliate and instead of stewing on it and fretting on it and dissecting it and putting it back and reliving it, are you prepared under the teaching of God's word to take it all to him and commit it to him? It's hard to do. Because if I commit everything to the one that judges righteously, it's a two-edged sword. Because he judges me righteously too. If I commit it all to him, it has the idea of letting it go. It means I'm surrendering the outcomes. I'm basically saying, Lord, it's not up to me to sort this out. It's not up to me to have the last word. I'm just going to surrender it and leave it with you. There's something in our fallen nature that does not want to do that. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're listening, you're saying, yeah, but that's just not right. They shouldn't get away, but that's not right. It should be. Yeah, maybe. You know who knows that? The one who judges righteously. And if it is an issue of vindication, if it is an issue of people who have done wrong, who need to be held accountable for their wrong. No, I'm not talking about issues of assembly discipline or interpersonal Matthew 18 situations. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a situation where things have degenerated to a point where there are hurtful words and insults and broken relationships and the resulting hurt, wounded spirits. If there is a need for someone to step in and make things right, God's more than able to do that. But you know the first thing you should want him to do is to heal you. Let the rest go. Surrender the rest. Commit it to him. But I love the tense and I've stressed it already. It says, keep on committing it to him because you know what comes back. Like maybe you do have an experience. And you take it to the Lord and you pour your heart out and your spirit's broken and you leave it all with them. And there is some measure of peace and tranquility that comes to your soul and you realize I can leave it with him and I can move on. And then the next night, or a week later, you're lying in bed at night, the whole thing's coming back again, and it's flooding. You know, the devil's awfully good at what he does, and we're awfully good at letting him do what he does. And tragically, being used as instruments for him to use to do what he does in the lives of others. But what do you do? You keep on committing it to him that judgeth righteously. But just as I finish, my time's done, I want you to notice that there's a caution in the passage. Verse 20. With a message like this, there's always a danger that, in a circumstance, we tend to see ourselves as the hero or the heroine. We tend to see ourselves as the poor, misunderstood, wounded victim. It's human nature. People have been unfair to me. People have said things that aren't nice to me. People have misjudged my children. People have hurt me. And please, I'm not belittling any of that. I know it's tragically real and true, and it does hurt. But there's a caution right here in the passage that says, just be very careful to search your soul and make sure that it truly is for good conscience toward God. Because if you're hurting and suffering because of your faults and you're taking it patiently, Peter says there's not much glory in that, frankly. I mean, he's a little harsh maybe, but it's the truth. There's no tremendous eternal weight of glory out of suffering quietly when it's your own fault. Could I suggest that you be absolutely ruthless in judging that in yourself and very reluctant to judge it in others? Okay, Don't look at someone else in their situation and say, I know why this is happening and they contributed here and it's their fault. And it's very reluctant to judge this in others, but ruthless to judge it in yourself. So as I sit down with, could I just ask you, are you hurting today? Maybe you're saying, yes, I'd love to just pour into your ear exactly what's happened. Please, it's not that I don't care. I do. But I I don't know, and I probably can never really know all of the details. So what do you do? Well, here's what I'd suggest. Get into the presence of God. Examine your heart. Ask Him, as the psalmist did, search me, O God, know my heart. Ask Him to help you to understand what of your situation truly is suffering for righteousness' sake. And if that's where you are, Then remember, the biggest danger is that you will sin with your mouth or your fingers typing, texting. That's the biggest danger you face. The biggest danger you face if you're hurting unjustly is how you're going to respond. So don't. Don't retaliate in kind. Don't take up your own cause. Don't run around waging your own PR campaign. Don't try to change the narrative. Don't try to control the information. Instead, focus on Christ. He has left us an example. He knows what you're going through. He judges righteously. He has said, and he's watching, and he's interested, and he longs to see his character reproduced in you right in the middle of your circumstances. Focus on the one who judges righteously and keep on committing everything to him.